This message is brought to you by DoNotAge.org, the longevity research organisation that's on a mission to extend health span for as many people as possible via products that actually work. Start your journey today at DoNotAge.org and use code LAMA for a 10% discount. That's L-L-A-M-A. The way clinical trials are done, the recruitment is extremely narrow in scope, and the burden for the participants currently is extreme. Now, you decentralize that. You recruit through all avenues. You enable people to participate kind of across the country, across the world, and participate from their own home. I think that's really where we see research going. Hello, and welcome to the Live Long and Master Aging podcast. I'm Peter Bowes, and this is where we explore the science and stories behind human longevity. This week, we're at the Global Body Computing Conference at the University of Southern California in Los Angeles. Now, much of what we talk about on this podcast is inspired by clinical trials, the grassroots scientific research that is so crucial to our understanding of the human body, the diseases that affect all of us and the medical interventions, preventative and sometimes predictive that influence our long-term health. Well, today I'm joined by Dr. Michelle Longmire, Stanford-trained physician, entrepreneur, and the founder of Medable, the digital format that's doing so much really quite groundbreaking work, making the world of medicine more accessible to all of us. Michelle, welcome to the Lama Podcast. Thank you. I'm very excited to be here. So tell me a little bit more about Medable. It's quite a, a unique concept. Sure. So, you know, Medable was really inspired by my work um, at Stanford, where I practiced both as a dermatologist and as a researcher. And in that, I understood that, you know, the data that's limited to clinical visits when patients come in and we're caring for them, or when you're conducting a clinical research project and you're limited to the data that's provided in a clinical visit, you know, it's very much a snapshot of someone's health. And so the hypothesis and what we're really driving with Medable is a new paradigm called direct-to-patient. And this is let's capture data for clinical trials and clinical care that's every day out and about in your real-world life and use that to inform our understanding of health and disease. And so that's really what we're pioneering. So what kind of data are you talking of? What kind of data are you capturing? Sure. So we're capturing, you know, environmental determinants of disease as well as those really important self-reported or patient-reported outcomes. So, you know, what is the UV index? What is the urban air quality? What are the other emerging diseases in the area that you live? What are some of the um, socioeconomic factors or even weather pattern factors that may actually determine your health outcome? In combination with, depending on the disease condition or, you know, area of study, how do you feel? Um, what are you reporting? And then thirdly, the physiologic kind of continuous measurement of your life. So using sensors, both worn and in home, to capture that physiology, uh, physiology continuously. And, and the idea here is clearly everyone potentially benefits from the person providing the data. I nearly said giving up the data. I think that perhaps is the wrong phrase. It gives the wrong impression. But the person who has ownership of the data and those who are 
analyzing it. Yeah, absolutely. What we are also pioneering is this concept called the digitome. And so very similar to the human genome, you know, which is the genetic basis of our existence of the humankind, we believe that the digitome, you know, digital signatures of health and disease will be as informative um, and will help us understand health and disease better. And so, yes, there's certainly a population benefit to us capturing this information, but the value we provide is actually in enabling better clinical trials and enabling better clinical care. So examples, you know, in immuno-oncology, we have this whole new um, domain of chemotherapy agents or essentially um, drug therapies that leverage the immune system. And the immune system is highly influenced by our day-to-day life. So this contextual data, this continuous data can really help us potentially even predict some of the adverse side effects or response to therapy. So I think there's direct value in clinical trials um, and also in clinical care and things like preventing readmissions postoperatively, a whole host of other areas. And we hear a lot, obviously, these days about the value of big data. Mm-hmm. The bigger the data, I suppose, the better the the experiment because it stands to reason if you have 10 subjects versus 10,000 and you're averaging results, perhaps effects of a a drug interaction or or exercise or or a diet, if you're seeing it across 10,000 people as opposed to just a small number, clearly it's more meaningful. I, you know, I think that's in general true, although I would say that small data is also important. So something, for example, of you know, do you feel better today versus yesterday um, can actually be far more informative than, you know, say accelerometer data for six weeks that's totally uncurated. So, yes, what I think, though, um, what really um, kind of essentially resonates with me about what you said is that diversity in the data across a condition or across health is so important, especially as we look at personalized medicine. So, you know, if we're determining that this medication is most efficacious in this particular genotype or this particular subset of the population, for us to have diversity in our clinical research and clinical care is so important. And for that reason, among many others, you know, the bigger the data, the more representative the population is, um, and the more diverse it is. Is the better. So let's just talk about clinical trials and, and how they operate. And perhaps with a, an audience in mind that hasn't had any involvement with the clinical trial, clearly we hear about them a lot. We read them in the papers when this a breakthrough clinical trial is concluded and it suggests that. But as to how they work, I think it's a little bit of a mystery to a lot of people. I, I actually took part in a clinical trial as a subject myself a few years ago. It was looking at a, a fast mimicking diet. I've talked a lot about it on the this podcast mm-hmm. it involved eating certain foods with Longo with Dr. Walter Longo yeah of mm-hmm. course and that was a very let's say labor intensive clinical trial mm-hmm. it involved from my perspective eating the food and following the regime mm-hmm. but it also involves going for blood tests and, mm-hmm. and other tests scans that kind of thing you physically got to turn up you've got to show up at the mm-hmm. hospital or the center or the research place whatever it is and go through that and one of the problems and not necessarily in this trial but but other trials involving similar labor intensive behaviors is people dropping out people not right. keeping appointments which 
can be very expensive. Absolutely. So, you know, this direct-to-patient model that we are really pioneering is both addressing recruitment and retention. So, you know, recruitment, kind of first to address how does a clinical trial work, really only 3% of eligible participants ever enroll in a clinical trial. So even as a doctor in medical school and through my residency, and I trained at Stanford, you know, very much a um, research-focused institution, we never learned as physicians how to inform a patient or enroll them in a clinical trial. It's just not a part of the clinical delivery kind of ecosystem. So there's a big problem in recruitment and us not leveraging clinical delivery of care. And I think when you go direct to patient, you're using social media recruitment. You're also using things like EMR integration to in real time understand when someone enters the healthcare system who would be eligible. So you you are addressing this um, recruitment issue. But to your point about retention, so yes, now you're in a clinical trial. So let's say that you've been recruited by standard means, which is a doctor, you know, who's an investigator on the trial recruiting someone who happens to walk in that door, which obviously, as we know, in terms of receiving information, there are many new channels. We could recruit people far better. Um, But about the participation. So you're going in there day after day. I mean, this study of fasting mimicking diet and Longo's work is a perfect example of where we could use direct-to-patient. You could imagine instead of going into the clinic and doing the weigh-ins, the blood pressures, the blood the blood assays, instead you wake up, you answer a couple of survey questions in your application step on a Bluetooth-connected scale. Um, Some of our clinical trials even involve home finger prick to capture some of the blood data. Um, And for them to be able to actually capture that physiologic data from you over the day, so not just that, you know, every two or three weeks that you went in there. So I think when you look at... the way clinical trials are done, the recruitment is extremely narrow in scope, and the burden for the participants currently is extreme. Now, you decentralize that. You recruit through all avenues. You enable people to participate kind of across the country, across the world, and participate from their own home. I think that's really where we see research going. Yeah, it's, it seems to be a win-win situation for everyone, especially making it easier for the volunteers. And I, I think right. by their very nature, volunteers in the clinical trial are enthusiastic about the trial. They have a almost a vested interest mm-hmm. in the subject matter that's being tested. Nevertheless, it could become, especially if it's just trial over a long period of time, it can become quite a burden. Absolutely. And, and I think it's not just a burden. It's also, can we understand this better? So I would hypothesize that if we did a direct-to-patient continuous clinical trial with the fasting-mimicking diet, we may be able to develop a digital signature of aging. So we may actually be able to look at that physiologic data and provide you feedback on some time frame that says the things you did today are making you older faster. The things you did a week ago are actually making you older at a slower rate. And that's the kind of data that I think we really need to start making impactful interventions in things that are nebulous like aging. That's really interesting because I think, and you could extrapolate that, there is technology now clearly that will tell us on a daily basis Basis if we're doing something, let's say blood sugar, which we've actually heard about at this conference mm-hmm. today. If you are constantly measuring your blood sugar, you can adapt your activities for a day based on, in terms of what you're eating, of what your blood sugar is, is telling you. Absolutely. So we know in human behavior that immediate feedback can directly impact behavior. So, you know, we know it with weight gain. People who step on the scale every day are far less likely to actually gain weight over time. Um, we know that if you check your blood pressure, you know, or pardon me, your blood glucose more continuously, you're going to make better choices in managing that. So yeah, kind of coming back to this concept of aging, where's the feedback system for that? And I mean, it's tangential to where we started this conversation, but I think 
that's really the power of kind of what we're doing as a company is we're engaging with people directly, capturing robust data sets, and then ideally providing that information directly back to them over time that can really influence those behavior choices. Now, I'm very enthusiastic about this, and I think people listening to this probably are like-minded in, in that respect. However, there are still people who are unnervous when you talk about giving up data and, and sharing data, and I mentioned ownership of data earlier. Clearly, we're moving into a world where this is going to happen more and more often, and, and you can see why it's for the greater good. Equally, people, I think, want to be reassured that they don't have to do it if they don't want to. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that we don't really change the paradigm of um, what an individual, um, what type of data it is, and how, or I guess I should say, what type of data is shared. So because you're connect, collecting it you know, in your home, you're collecting it through devices, you're collecting it through an app, doesn't mean it's entering some wider data field. It's still going back to the pharmaceutical company. It's still going back to the hospital system. And we have just tremendous amount of infrastructure in place to ensure that that data is secure and it's going back to you know, those that are intended to. With that said, you know, we do enable data donation and this broader de-identified ecosystem, but really, um, first and foremost, we ensure for every participant and patient that their data is very protected. So talking about your company then, what are your big successes so far? Oh, it's it's been fascinating. I mean, we're, we're three years old, so it's kind of a new endeavor in general. And in each year, I think you begin to see, you know, this kind of exponential gain in the progress that you've made. So we went from last year, you know, um, having really three customers to this same time now last year to this year. Now we have 15 hospital systems, actually represents over 60 individual hospitals, um, and three large biotech companies leveraging our platform, that holistically representing the reach of our platform uh, potentially to 15 million patients and 6,000 clinical trials. And I think you know, when we talk about what we're doing to investors and people, you know, who are interested in looking at growth factors, you know, how is your company growing? It's really impressive. People are like, how can you have that many customers new in one year? Um, because usually selling to hospital systems is quite slow. But what this, what we're doing, enabling doctors and researchers to capture this data directly, um, there's just a significant appetite for doing this. And you mentioned earlier that when you were training as a doctor, you weren't given any instruction, any education on this kind of work in terms of clinical trials. It's interesting to me because I often talk to physicians, to doctors, in terms of diet, and they mm -hmm. say, we didn't get any diet education <laughs> right. at all. Or maybe we had 30 minutes talking right. about diet and the implications right. of diet. There was a lot, this seems to me, a lot lacking in traditional training of doctors. Maybe there still is. I think that's absolutely true. I mean, so in my training, I was trained about clinical trials, but that was simply because I was a researcher. So uh, what I was kind of implying earlier was that the standard medical school curriculum, the standard residency program doesn't include that. But yeah, they think that in the training, um, you know, of physicians, and there's definitely a focus on disease and a lack of focus on health. And in that, there's also a focus on, you know, working within the current system, which is about delivering care and providing it there. And it's less about um, you know, looking at clinical trials, looking at how we can expand the scope and offering for that particular person, because it might be that the delivery of that care is far outside of that institution. So I think we do tend to become a little bit myopic. 
talking about specific diseases, and I think this perhaps obviously will resonate with so many people listening to this, when we talk about trying to do a huge, large clinical trial, collecting data, obviously there are diseases in mind that specifically people want to eventually see a cure for. And obviously, I think cancer is the thing that would probably come first to mind, Mm -hmm. but there's heart disease, there's diabetes as well. Is there anything on your radar Mm -hmm. that this kind of research and data collection that you're talking about is particularly useful for? Yeah, so my background as a researcher was in epigenetics. So this is really about how, you know, the slate of genome that we're given from the time we're born is really influenced by the choices we make, the way we live, to really dictate our actual health. And so there are many diseases where the epigenome, um, really how we live, environmental determinants of disease, play a very significant role in disease. So these are things like schizophrenia, autoimmune disease, aging, um, you know, where you can't say it's this one gene, it's this one thing that you did, this one exposure. It's really a confluence of things um, in the decisions we make. So I think capturing that data over time will help inform us what are the drivers of those diseases. And you fall into the group of medical professionals who consider aging to be a disease? Well, that's a so interesting. I mean, you know, I, I should say that it's, it's certainly a condition. Um, it's, a, it's part of the human condition. It's also, you know, interestingly, when you really look around, inorganic matter ages. Everything ages in, you know, the space-time continuum that we live in here in this universe. Um, so, you know, but I do consider a condition, certain people, it is a disease if you have progeria or other inherited forms of accelerated aging. Um, I would say at this point, aging is a disease in over 50% of people because it's it's driven by uh, life choices that can be modified to optimize their health, just like diabetes, prediabetes, heart failure, heart disease. And in, in a large number of people, aging really is a disease. You mentioned life choices. In terms of your own life, how do you apply the knowledge that you have gleaned, not only as a doctor, but in your current line of work as well? to your own life and your own longevity? So, you know, I think longevity has been such an interest of mine for many years. And in fact, I chose to go to Stanford to do dermatology, specifically to research longevity in this lab that I worked in, the lab of Howard Chang. And, you know, um, so I've forever, since I can remember, made certain choices that I think um, were in the vein of like wanting to live a longer, healthier life and also look more young. So I remember when I was very young, my grandmother told me, you know, sleep on your back. And to this day, I sleep on my back, you know, and it's interesting, but you look, there's a whole world around Botox and fillers for preventing fine lines, you know, so (laughs) making choices like sleeping on your back actually affects your facial structure. One of my colleagues, uh, Zakia Ramond, demonstrated that at Stanford in a study. Um, So I'd say from the time I was young, I've tried to optimize my choices for a particular longevity outcome, knock on wood, but really not because I'm like, I want to live to 120, but it's just a very strong intellectual interest. So there's a satisfaction in doing that um, in those choices. So you sleep on your back. What about your diet and exercise regimes? Yeah. So I believe that exercise really is the most potent thing we can do to prevent aging. Um, The fasting data is also quite compelling, but mixed. Um, But kind of coming back to exercise, you know, we know that when we do brain imaging that we have more brain volume and matter over time as we age uh, with exercise. And I think that, 
you know, when you look at the human brain, over 90% of kind of the function of the human brain is in the motor area. And we're really designed to move, both for mental health and physical health. So every day I pretty much religiously run for about an hour or do like high intensity cardiovascular exercise um, for an hour. And um, it's just kind of a core part of my regimen and how I live. From a diet perspective, I've experimented and done a number of the different kind of interventions for fasting, um, anywhere from a five-day fast to the fasting fasting mimicking diet. Um, oh, you've tried it? Yeah, I've tried it. How did you get on? Um, well, I've long followed this research, and so um, a friend and I actually have a number of kind of fasting hacks for smoothies and various like dietary methods for achieving FMD. Um, and also just like low caloric intake over, you know, some period of time. So that by that, you mean you essentially create your own recipes. Right. To try so to we mimic took the USC little white boxes. Exactly. So, you know, they had the white boxes for the people in the studies that, here. That's what I used. Right. And then now I think they've commercialized that. But what we did is instead we took the fasting mimicking diet concept and we created a, a superfood version of it. So following the same protein, fat and, uh, sugar breakdown of what you are trying to achieve over those five days, but doing it with things like, you know, kale and really kind of um, essentially micronutrient charged and antioxidant charged. Yeah. So I've done those things and I, I enjoy doing them intermittently. I, you know, just at the end of the day, the one thing I can say that I find is that if you fast one day a week, you feel your intellect is more powerful. Um, you feel overall sharper. Um, at, at what point, and uh, I fasted on, I did 36 hours on, mm-hmm. so Sunday night to Tuesday morning of this week, and I know exactly what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. The effect is is similar to the five days, even though it's a fast mimicking five days, so there is some food mm-hmm. involved. But you get to that state, and I've talked about it many times, that sort of mental euphoria, mm-hmm. that mental agility that you get to, which I, I think is what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, absolutely. It's amazing. I mean, you never realized you felt mentally slow before but then when you have that kind of you're in that state of the fast and you experience just that sort of mental acuity you realize it is differentiated so I think you can achieve that with a day fast um, like with a 24 hour 36 hour I don't think you have to have the five day set I think there are a number of ways um, you know to achieving that now I think there are probably and I'm sure you'll understand this better than I do, but there are longer-term benefits of, of fasting for maybe two or three days at least in succession that you get into a deeper state of, of right. fasting. Right, yeah. And I mean, I think that the, the research in this is really emerging, and you've probably interviewed people who are closer to some of the specific domains of this, but I think you know, autophagy and this whole concept that um, you know, when you're fasting, you're activating metabolic pathways that are a core part of, you know, the way we are built as humans or kind of our our entire system and how we would optimally function from a cellular perspective. And this is autophagy, the process of essentially throwing out those cells right. that are maybe old, not working properly, need replacing. Well, it's specifically actually dealing with the protein aggregation that happens over time. And so, so basically in a standard life, we're eating all the time and you're kind of constantly 
constantly, you know, in the state with like your foot on the accelerator. You're always pumping energy into the system. But when you fast, you actually now are activating, you know, um, catabolic pathways or other pathways within the metabolism that are designed to kind of be in the repair, cleaning, housekeeping domain is the way we think about it. But there are really ways to harness internal energy stores rather than harness external energy stores to preserve and do all of the cellular functions we need. And what we're discovering is that in that fasting process, um, potentially, or in a starvation state, um, you actually can see activation of these pathways that lead to clearing out protein aggregates within the cell. And I think, you know, Alzheimer's disease is a well-known example where you get protein aggregation. Now, I'm not saying it's because you've eaten too much food over time, but we do know that protein aggregation is a core part of aging. Um, in terms of, you know, what we see over time, and then it disrupts cellular function. So anyhow, you know, um, fasting itself and the, what it triggers, as you're saying, if you do multiple days, you may be able to more deeply tap into some of those pathways that lead to kind of deeper cellular optimization and house cleaning and functioning. And what kind of, when you're not fasting, what kind of diet do you have? Um, and I can't say that, you know, at this point, I'm not, I don't have a particular fasting regimen. Um, I've done this for years and, and I'm a very strong, like, um, believer in my kind of athletic career in a sense from just a mental, uh, preservation. Like if I run every day, I can manage my company as a CEO, you know, it's just a stress uh, mitigation factor, but, um, so I do fast, though, fairly frequently. But in addition to the diet, so in terms of diet, what do I focus on? I mean, I uh, I love the um, cruciferous greens. You know, I'm a big, yeah, I'm someone who loves to eat kale. Um, there's a lot, there's interesting data emerging and looking at some of the micronutrients there is very powerful anti-carcinogens. Um, and I do think there's really strong data to show that, you know, the less meat you eat, the fewer types of cancer you have or lowers your risk of cancer, I should say. And specifically, you know, burnt, overly cooked meat is fairly well-established carcinogen at this point, specifically for colorectal cancer. So, you know, I tend to eat more greens. Um, I am a believer that humans are omnivores. And so I am, you know, I do eat that diet. I've also even tried... Um, so you eat some meat? I eat some meat. Some fish, maybe? Yeah, primarily fish, you know, and even then I think about you don't want it too much heavy metal exposure. So you want to steer towards salmon, you know, um, less lower predatory, um, lower in the food chain in terms of fish. So yeah, I, I primarily eat greens. I eat a lot of fish. Um, and I try to avoid red meat and excessively cooked red meat. But, you know, I think there's not, I don't f follow a specific regimen. And what dry, and clearly I can see your enthusiasm for what you do, but when you get out <laughs> of bed every morning, what, what in terms of your work and, and your ambitions for the company what what drives you every day well you know i think that i've always i've loved the process of discovery and so on a day-to-day -day basis we're driving towards enabling a new kind of paradigm of discovery and it's just so exciting you know when i look at how researchers are leveraging our technology what diseases they're exploring um, i can really see that i i believe we're adding substantively to what will be discovered. And that is just the neatest 
process. Also, you know, our team, interestingly, is very health focused. When you look at our office, we have, you know, almost every kind of like weight ball exercise band you can imagine. So we actually do exercise together fairly frequently. So part of what gets me out of bed is just the opportunity to work with the people that I, you know, have the chance to work with. And interestingly, in the vein of longevity, there was a study that was recently recently came out um, that showed that sometimes I worry, like, is the amount that I work and the amount of stress I have aging me? But there was recently a study that showed if you love your job, you can kind of handle this burn the candle from both ends better. And in terms of your own longevity, I mean, clearly you, you do think about this a lot and you focus on issues, diet, exercise, and... I guess you think about what could be in 50 years' time, in the decades ahead, what kind of person you want to be. When you do that, what is in your mind? What's uppermost in your mind in terms of how you want to grow old? You know, I think agility is probably the first word that comes to mind. So this would both be mental agility um, and physical agility. I think what, what I believe, you know, we kind of represents youthfulness is the ability to um, understand rapidly and physically perform, you know, to your physical capability and potential. And agility is something you do see being lost over time with aging. So it, whether it's slower um, understanding, you know, the slower adoption of new technologies or new processes in life, and physically loss of agility, you know, um, loss of flexibility, loss of the use of your body. So I would hope that I can maintain my agility in those domains to the best of my ability. And the reason I'm often asked this, the reason for wanting to live a long life, why keep on living? Do you have a, a theory on that? Or, if, or if, do you have a philosophy on that? You know, I think when you enjoy and love what you do and you feel like, I don't think, you know, I'm, I think everyone, many people make really important contributions, but it's about the fact that we're doing something unique and I'm really driven to kind of continue to further that. It's about really what you want to do and that, you know, understanding that if you weren't there doing it, some that would be a loss in terms of what you see to be an important contribution. So I think that's a driver as is, you know, just the standard things of, you know, you want to enjoy, see your family, you know, see more places, you know, all of those kind of <laughs> hedonistic sort of joyful um, driven, uh, I guess, desires that one wants in their lifetime. But I think more than length to me is really quality. Um, and I believe those tend to go hand in hand. It's a fascinating subject. And uh, I, agree, I agree with so much of, of what you say, especially in terms of, of aspirations and, and why we should want to live a long and, and healthy life. It seems to make so much sense. What drives you primarily? Well, you've actually listed some of those hedonistic reasons mm-hmm. that you want to keep on living, to keep on enjoying life. I have this, and maybe this is the journalist in me wanting to see what happens next. Right. And whether that's what happens next on the global stage or what happens next in terms of the scientific developments in food and diet and things that really interest me, I kind of want to be around to see it mm-hmm. and then apply it to myself if mm-hmm. I'm able to do that. So I think for all of those reasons and I always say the alternative isn't particularly exciting right to living long and healthy so I think there are lots of good positive reasons and I think to the greater good if we can focus on being healthy for as long as we can think of the money that will be saved in health systems around the world and and money that could perhaps be put into 
combating those diseases that really there's little we can do at a personal lifestyle mm-hmm. level to change, but a bit of good, solid, well-funded scientific research might one day cure pancreatic cancer or mm-hmm. some of those really challenging mm-hmm. issues. Yeah, that's very well stated. I think that it's a great point. You know, so many quality days lost, um, a lot of money going into potentially preventable um, and long-term kind of chronic suffering. So I think it's a good, you know, kind of vision that we live these long, healthy lives. Dr. Michelle Longmire, I've really enjoyed this. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you so much. And that's it. Just before we go, if you subscribe to the podcast and download automatically every week, I'm very grateful to you. You could also take a look at our website, Live Long and Master Aging. We have a new and refreshed look. You can search through our back catalogue of interviews. You can listen to the Dr. Volta Longo interview that I think was episode one and hear all about his side of uh, fasting mimicking diets there's a link to get in touch with the podcast as well we're at llamapodcast.com that's double l-a-m-a podcast.com you can also contact us via social media facebook twitter and instagram at llama podcast many thanks for listening FlexBeam is a portable red light therapy device that's now being used by leading athletes, including the Norwegian tennis player Kasper Rude. Whenever you put the FlexBeam on, you feel it starts to work right away. I need something that can help repair all the fibres that I have broken in the surfs. The infrared lights penetrate your skin and makes the muscle tissue recover faster. FlexBeam, I keep it with me all the time. Recharge Health is offering Llama Podcast listeners an $80 discount on the purchase of a FlexBeam device. Go to the website recharge.health and use the code LLAMA at checkout. That's L-L-A-M-A. You'll also find the link in the show notes for this episode.